welcome everyone to another episode of Conduct Detrimental. This week I am joined by the one, the only, Dan Wallach. How goes it, Dan? Uh, Dan, it's going well. Thanks for welcoming me back to my own podcast, but I've been on hiatus <laughs> for a little while. Actually, I didn't start this podcast. Dan Worley came up with the idea. Then he invited me, and then he became in-house counsel for the Tennessee Titans. So you became the successor to Dan Worley, and now I think you're kind of running with this podcast. And I've been in Siberia, Russia on you know different you know uh, foreign assignments mainly covering sports betting in Florida. So I haven't had my head in the game and, and, and closely following some of the issues. But last week, I kind of came back up for air. So everything's going well. I've got a lot to cover and a lot to talk about today on the Florida Gaming and Sports Betting Compact. But why don't you, why don't you just set us up? We've got a, a, a real good tight episode today. Well, Dan, maybe you were buried so far deep in Siberia, you, mixed the, you missed the big personal news in my life, Dan. Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? Wait a second. I've read your uh, Twitter handle. It now has a new assination at the beginning of it. Professor Sports Law Lust. Is that real? Are you a real professor or are you like Roy Bitten from the E Street Band? You know, the professor. Is it a nickname well, or is it a title? It is a real title. Yes, the, the rumors are true. I will be teaching the sports law class as an adjunct professor at New York Law School starting in the fall. I am remaining a full-time attorney. I had some people ask me whether I was quitting the practice. Not yet. Not yet. Maybe someday, Dan, when you and I get our show on ESPN, maybe maybe at that point we'll quit. But yeah. for now, we're, we're, we're having fun being full-time lawyers. What do you say, Dan? I'm a professor at Miami Law School and New Hampshire. And New Hampshire. Adjunct professor. We've got a sports law right. show to do here. So we will, you know, we'll go through one through four today. Dan, no secret, we got you back on the podcast after hiatus because you were dealing and are still dealing with the chaos over in Florida, the sports betting issues. So that'll be first and foremost. Number two, it's a sport that we don't cover as much. But when in news like this, obviously it's right in our wheelhouse, there's an international, call it an international, but it's a, a very big boxing arbitration decision uh, involving really three of the best heavyweight boxers in the world. Number three, a topic that we covered uh, really about almost a year ago, a looming and now actual MLBPA grievance that's being filed against Major League Baseball for $500 million. And last but not least, we're continuing up on a story that's really been uh, at the wheelhouse of our show the past couple of weeks. That's the Bob Baffert. We'll say uh, witch hunt. How about that? Mm -hmm. So, Dan, I, I kick it to you. As I see, uh, you're sending out tweets, so you're ready to go. you got a lot of ammo, ammo for the podcast, ammo for tweets. But, Dan, why don't you fill our lovely listeners in on, on why you've been on this hiatus, what's going on in Florida, and why it demands the attention of sports law fans? Yeah, around the country, uh, states have been passing sports betting laws pretty quickly in the aftermath of the Murphy versus NCAA decision. And it, it has normally taken uh, an act of the legislature. The statutes are passed, you know, normally outside of the tribal process. It's just a straightforward piece of legislation. Florida is different. Florida has two potential legal obstacles. It has a state constitutional ban against casino gambling, but it has a safe harbor through the Florida like tribal compacting process, which is the Seminole Tribe of Florida has class three gaming rights under federal law under the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act. So in order to avoid a potential state constitutional challenge in state court, uh, our lovely state and our state lawmakers have uh, legalized statewide mobile, mobile sports betting through the construct of a class three Indian gaming compact, which is covered or governed under a federal statute known as the Indian Gaming Regulatory Act. There's one problem, however, with doing it that way. 
IGRA, as it's known, only encompasses and only permits gaming activity that takes place solely on Indian land. And tell me, Dan, you've been to Florida visiting your in-laws. When you're visiting them, and if you're placing a bet on your mobile device from your cell phone from their living room while you're having you know, Passover dinner, are you on Indian land when you're doing that? This is a hypothetical, of course, because of course I don't place bets in the state of Florida. But if you did, but if would, I did, would your parents' living room during Passover while you're eating gefilte fish, is that considered Indian land when you place the bet? I don't think so, Dan. I don't think it can be, but you, you tell me. I don't think so. Well, but under the incredible creativity of our state legislature and the negotiators for the Seminole tribe, they have circumvented the federal requirement that all gaming activity take place solely on Indian land by coming up with this creative theory that if you stick a server in the ground, like an antenna in the ground in, in, on the Seminole tribes, Indian reservation in Hollywood, Florida, and in, and in Tampa, if you, if you place the server on, on tribal land, all bets occurring throughout the state are deemed to occur where the server's located, even if the customer is in Key West or, or Orlando. I think what the state legislature and the governor have done here is, is thwart the will of Congress by expanding the boundaries of what constitutes Indian land by coming up with a construct that uh, flies in the face of the plain language. Now, there are two concepts that are very important here under the federal law. Uh, gaming activity, what does that mean? And Indian land, what does that mean? Well, they've both been defined, one by Congress and the other by the US Supreme Court. The co Congress has specifically and narrowly defined Indian land to mean exactly what you think it means, the reservation and any other property that's owned by the Seminole tribe, that's held in trust by the US government for the benefit of the tribe. That's, that's a very limited sphere of territory. Gaming activity is not defined by, by the statute, but it's defined by a higher authority, uh, US Supreme Court Associate Justice Elena Kagan, in an opinion that she uh, penned in 2014 in Michigan versus Bay Mills, she said in the context of this Indian gaming law, gaming activity means exactly what you think it means. It's the actual gambling itself. It's the roll of the dice. It's the spin of the wheel. It's the gambling that takes place in the poker room, in the poker hall, not the offsite administrative activity. So what you can really take that concept or definition and, and substitute the word server in place of offsite administrative activity. It means that the focus of where the gambling takes place is the location of the better, not the location of the equipment. So when you have these two different distinct concepts, gaming activity and Indian lands, and you pair them together, it means that all of the gambling activity, all of the activities of the better, the placing of the bet has to take place solely on Indian land. And there's, there's Ninth Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals case law and some other federal interpretations that are decidedly one-sided. I mean, it's like a unanimity around this issue. Not a lot of case law, but certainly enough, I would think the U.S. Court of Appeals from the Ninth Circuit is not de minimis uh, when you're looking for precedent to rely on. I have a question, Dan. So uh, for people that don't follow Dan on Twitter, obviously you should, Dan's a great follow. As I've divulged to you in the past, I get notifications and anytime you send a, any type of tweet, and sometimes us over at Conduct Detrimental, we're a little too quick on the retweet button, as you've told me. Sometimes, you know, the Russian translation, you gotta, you gotta delete a tweet and redo it. But that said, I, I see, Dan, when you are speaking at, at any number of cities, 
and towns and any type of radio stations within Florida. There's a lot of news networks, radio stations that are covering this ongoing Florida sports betting debate. Now, here's my the, question the, to you. The Las Vegas Review Journal uh, devoted an entire column today to my Forbes piece that I wrote two days ago in, I, in how this situation creates a whipsaw effect and will lead to a federal court blue penciling the compact and striking out the mobile betting piece because it violates IGRA and leaving in its place a tribal monopoly over in-person sports betting and completely severing out any participation well, from all the racetracks and other environmental facilities. Let me, so let me tell you why. Global, I, Dan. But, well, no, but I, I didn't mean it's either whoever's bringing it up. There's a lot of news coverage is why I bring it up. So this tribal monopoly you mentioned, and this is, this is where I'm kind of. Not a game. Well, no, hear, hear me out for a second. If you're a resident of the state of Florida and you want sports betting, right? You want to bet in yeah. some sense, right? Tribal monopoly or otherwise. Um, why does it necessarily make a difference? And, and you can educate me. Why does it make a difference to the guy that wants to bet? Who, who's running the betting? Be it tribal, you know, or be it one of the, the race, racing operators or a stadium or you know, a normal casino? Why does it matter who's controlling it? Two reasons, Dan, and I think that's the best question that you could possibly ask because most. Oh, thank, thank you, Dan. Most, 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 you know, customers and sports betters don't care about the legal uh, wrangling. They care about whether they can place a bet, how they can place a bet, where they can place a bet. You know what they uh, say, Dan? There's a there's a GIF because uh, you ever, Dan? Do you watch Futurama? Do you ever watch that show? Futurama? I watched Wonderama when I was, uh, you know, eight years old. Is that the same thing? With Bob very, very different, but Futurama, okay. there's a GIF where the main character, Fry, it's a very famous GIF online. I'm calling it GIF. That's what, how the people pronounce it. And he says, shut up and take my money. And he's holding a wad of cash. Customers mm -hmm. will go to the betting window. They just want to bet, right? Maybe they don't care about the nuances of who's controlling it, but the customer just wants to bet with somebody. And isn't this kind of issue just kind of clouding this sports betting landscape? Don't they just, doesn't the customer just want something? Yeah, but what the customer ends up with in terms of a marketplace is going to look decidedly different than what the customer hopes for. Let me let me put a finer point on this. Uh, because the elements of the compact include off-reservation sports betting you know, through mobile devices and then betting in person at, at outside racetracks, uh, the likelihood is that a federal court will, will, will invalidate those parts of the compact and a, a mobile wager in all likelihood will never be able to be placed through this compact. Uh, and when it gets stricken out of the, the law by a federal judge, then you're not gonna be able to make bets anywhere outside of tribal land. And you'll in all likelihood as a customer be required to go to one of the eight or so tribal reservations, not, not all any tribe, but the Seminole tribe of Florida. They have, I think eight you know, in-person locations, either reservations or off-site uh, you know, trust property, which they run gaming on, and a state of the magnitude and size of Florida with, I don't know what our population is, 20 million or, or more than that, to subject a population of that size dispersed over such a wide geographic area to eight brick and mortar locations. It would be like having eight Starbucks in the state of Florida where that's the only place you can get coffee. Think about how inconvenient that would be. For me, I, I'd, I'd live full-time in, in Siberia if that were the case. So that's number one issue. Number two- Not that you're living in Siberia full-time right now. Yeah, right. Number two, <laughs> let's assume that Daniel Wallach is wrong and that a compact which flies in the face of plain and unambiguous statutory language and in the face of every federal court decision on that point that's ever been decided somehow, somehow survives a legal challenge because the federal court will 
uh, take a different view as to whether the server can constitute the entirety of the gaming activity. Let's say, let's say a miracle happens here and mobile sports betting survives. Uh, it will probably take a lot longer for it to roll out because of the legal proceedings. It might go past October 15th, but from a consumer, from a consumer perspective, the choices you're gonna be left with are unpalatable because this is a hub and spoke system in which the Seminole tribe is the hub and everyone else is the spoke. So their mobile sports betting app will be the dominant one in the state. And unlike New Jersey, where you have freedom of choice, you can bet on any number of, I think 17 different mobile apps. Pennsylvania, you can bet on 11 different mobile apps. Florida will likely have one have and many have nots. So the tribe will have their own application through I think something called Hard Rock Digital. They'll partner with maybe one of the major companies. And then all of the other companies are going to have to scurry around and partner up with the power mutual facilities. And you would think, well, what difference does it make if, you know, who, who controls the mobile platform? The difference is that the power mutual facilities, which are racetracks, highlight venues, and dog tracks, under the terms of this compact, they have to pay over to the tribe 40% of all of their sports betting related revenues. So it creates a, an imbalance in the competitive landscape. So let's say Barstool, FanDuel, DraftKings are able to find racetrack partners. They're dealing with a smaller piece of the pie in that, in that their racetrack partner will only get to keep 60 cents out of every dollar. And that leaves less to divide with the mobile sports betting provider, which, which creates less profitability and moreover for the customer, less incentive and less wherewithal to provide these like you know uh, deposit uh, deposit bonuses and other giveaways and, and promotions that lure in gamblers. The tribal app, which may not be a very good app at all, depending on who they partner with, will have the dominant market share because it doesn't have to pay anything over to the racetracks, whereas the racetracks have to kick back 40% of everything they make. So the tribes have a, the Seminole tribe has a built-in competitive advantage and their mobile partner will be in a much better position to market directly to the racetracks customers. And in fact, all of this operation, even conducted through racetracks and their mobile partners are under the control of the tribe. They, they are owned, the customer's list, the list of the customers is owned by the Seminole tribe. So the tracks and their mobile sports betting partners are nothing more than marketing agents and the tribe control the whole thing and it's less profitable and there'd be less incentive for these companies to come in and, and, and spend in a state where all the action is pretty much under the control and under the thumb of one entity. So it doesn't create a, a competitive landscape that you see in New Jersey and Pennsylvania. It is almost like a monopoly and maybe more restrictive than what New York will look like. I hear you. I think competition is always good. We, we talk a lot on this podcast about antitrust issues and trying to avoid a monopoly. As we've seen in the NCAA context, if you don't have any players that are competing in the space, you're going to maybe not have the best possible product. So I, I get that part of it. It's obviously a little bit of an academic question. I've seen your, your comments, but I just want people to realize, right? You know, everybody wants athletes to get paid, right? And uh, they want their states to pass name, image, and likeness laws. Everybody, you know, for better, for worse, well, maybe not everybody, but they want cannabis laws to be passed in some sense and medicinal marijuana to be legal in their state. Same thing with sports betting. People want it legal. And if you choose not to partake uh, in sports betting, fine. Choose not to partake in medicinal marijuana or normal marijuana, fine. At least it's on the books. 
But I think you were right, Dan. If you're going to have private operators that are, are trying to uh, host sports betting and have mobile gaming websites, you have to create some type of a competition. So if you limit the field of players, I don't think that's good for anyone. I don't think it's good for the consumer. I don't think it's good for the industry. So I see the soapbox and I know why you're standing on it. But I just need to tell people, be patient. Be patient because sports betting will come. But it's got to be done the right way. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's my exactly view on right. it. So- let me just quickly, before we turn to the next topic, I want to lay out the process now. Now that it's been ratified, now that the compact has been signed by the governor, agreed to by the tribe, and ratified by the state legislature, now it gets presented to the United States Department of the Interior. And the Secretary of the Interior has 45 days to decide whether to approve the compact. And she'll either, in, in, in my view, she'll either approve it or let the 45 days run out, in which case the compact is automatically deemed approved. And that's when the parallel federal court and state court litigation will commence. So I would I would look to at some point in early to mid-July for one, a state court lawsuit saying that all this activity off tribal lands constitutes casino gambling in violation of Florida Amendment 3, which is in the state constitution, and it's a ban on casino gambling. And then there will be federal court litigation arguing what I've spent you know most of my time on this podcast discussing, which is that this mobile sports betting all takes place, most of it takes place off Indian lands and is not something that is properly includable within a compact. So there will be a federal court lawsuit filed in the middle of July with a motion for a temporary restraining order, preliminary injunction. And I would expect the situs, a uh, good SAT word, the situs of the federal court word. lawsuit to be in the District of Columbia. So it's going to be filed, I think, in the DC federal court system to uh, kind of get away from all this like influence and hometown and home cooking that Florida could represent. So there you go. That's, that's where things stand currently in the clusterfuck that is the state of Florida. I hear you now, Dan. Now, why we are talking, we always talk about sports betting because that's how, that's how Dan and my, my minds work in some sense. Probably will stand to be one of the most heavily bet sporting events is going to be any type of heavyweight title with some big fighters in the line. So just a brief background to the don't follow boxing. Boxing, uh, I actually heard a great podcast today. Max Kellerman was on the Ryan Russillo show over on The Ringer. Big fan of uh, both of those guys. Max Kellerman is, you know, one of the boxing authorities and has kind of spoke, you know, he's been pretty vocal that at, at its heart of hearts, we're all kind of combat sports fans, right? If on a street corner you see, this is his analogy. I don't want to take it, but it's a great one. If you see a bunch of kids playing stickball, Okay, and you see a bunch of kids playing uh, playground basketball. And then on a, a third corner, you see two kids in a fight, in a fist fight. Which one are you going to go watch, right? You're probably going to go watch the fist fight, right? That's just a human nature that we're going to watch the fight. Now, if you take that into the pro context and you have uh, Garrett Cole pitching to, you know, John Carlos Stanton on one corner and you have LeBron James taking on Steph Curry one-on-one. And then in the third corner, you have two relatively unknown boxers fighting each other. You're probably not going to go watch boxing. You're going to watch the other two. And Max Kellerman's analogy, Max Kellerman's over on ESPN. He does uh, first take with uh, Stephen A. Smith, really great guy. Basically says boxing had, has had an issue for years telling stories with its fighters. It's not Muhammad Ali. It's not George Foreman. It's not Mike Tyson. It's not Evander Holyfield. We don't know the, as many names in boxing as we used to. That said, we are getting to a point in boxing where the top stars in boxing, top heavyweight fighters are now about to be willing to fight each other. Okay, so now... Painted the picture a little bit. We're getting to a point where combat sports, MMA is very good at telling stories. Boxing is slow, but surely getting there. And there are three heavyweight fighters that in some way, shape or form, you know, all probably have a claim to be either number one or number two boxer in the world. Okay. Tyson Fury, number one. Number two, I'm going to say Anthony Joshua. And number three, a guy by the name of Deontay Wilder. 
Dan, they are all wrapped up in this sports law story. Now, okay. You ready for this, Dan? Do you follow me so far? I've, I've got Absolutely. in the black and I'm, box. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking, and I'm showing my age. None of them, none of them could have beaten Ernie Shavers, Ken Norton, Jerry Quarry, George Foreman, Joe Frazier, Muhammad Ali, the top 10 in the heavyweight division. We don't know that. Maybe they could have, Dan. Uh, I'm, I, 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 I see. I don't know if anybody would. The, the there, ratings. There, there are two men named Tyson. One of them's a bad man. He's retired. So these guys couldn't, ah. couldn't. They, well, they, they couldn't uh, they couldn't deal with the great fighters of the 1970s. But well, anyway, putting that aside, yeah, we don't know what modern technology, modern trading is. But and anyway, putting it aside, here's here's George where we're at. So, so that brings us to what we're dealing with here. I mentioned the Max Kellerman story because boxing has done a good job at telling the, the stories of these three boxers. Boxers traditionally, at least in in the modern times, have really been um, hesitant or unwilling to fight other top boxers they want to just keep their record pristine and they want to avoid the tough fights and that's what's really hurt the sport in recent years that's why mma is great ufc is great because dana white forces the top fighters to fight each other okay so now we're here that sets the stage for, for what we have deontay wilder fought tyson fury one of the, the two of the names i mentioned for the first time back in december of 2018 deontay wilder came in as the champ that fight you know was a little controversial but it ended up being a split decision one side viewed uh, ruled for wilder another side viewed for fury and then another, the third judge said it was a split decision so wilder get to keep the belt by default those two fought a second time in a, in a mega fight i'm sure most people watch this february of 2020 right before the pandemic and tyson fury won tyson fury's undefeated in his career with 30 wins okay so after that fight obviously deontay wilder lost he exercised what's called a rematch clause and he said, you know what? We had a contract. I was allowed to get a rematch with you. I'm exercising it. No one knew at that point that the pandemic would hit the world. So what happened was this rematch clause was supposed to extend until July of 2020. And then there was a 90-day window that basically took it to October of 2020. Now, whether it was because of the pandemic or because of an injury to Deontay Wilder, that rematch did not occur before October of 2020. So December, I think in good faith, you know, Fury was still trying to make it work with Wilder. And then December turned into January, they turned into February. And Wilder, you know, I think rubbed Fury the wrong way with some of his comments, making excuses for why he lost. And Fury just said, you know what? I don't think your rematch clause is good. I'm not honoring it. So if you want to take me to court, you want to take me to an arbitration, go ahead. But I'm not, I'm not doing this freely. So Wilder filed an arbitration case and had an arbitrator for this uh, Judge Daniel Weinstein, great first name, over in California, former judge. <laughs> and ruled in favor, this came out this week, of Deontay Wilder and said that this exercise, he was allowed to exercise his rematch clause. It is still in effect. It had not expired. And that Fury has to fight Deontay Wilder. Now, I'm going to add you one complicated component, Dan, and I'm going to turn it to you for the legalese. You know I got the boxing end of this. Anthony Joshua, that third name I mentioned, people have been waiting for years for a unification of the heavyweight title. I believe the last unified heavyweight champion was a guy by the name of Lennox Lewis a couple decades ago at this point, right? I remember him when I was growing up, but in the mid-2000s. Now, those two, after months of negotiation, Anthony Joshua and Tyson Fury, the guy that beat Wilder in that second fight, had arranged, just coincidentally, as timing worked out, after months of fighting, um, basically had agreed to fight in, in Saudi Arabia, of all places, on August, and I think it was August 14th. So they had finally figured out a way to unify the title belts. Joshua versus Fury, and everyone's getting all excited for that fight. And then after that fight had just been agreed to, the arbitrator comes in and rules in favor of Deontay Wilder and says, hey, 
your next fight, Tyson Fury, has to be against Deontay Wilder, and you have to have the belts on the line. So obviously he can't fight anybody before that and risk losing the belts. Now, Dan, final update, and I promise I'll give it to you because I, I love the story here. It's, you know I'm all about these stories. Even though this Joshua Fury fight was agreed to, Fury's lawyer has since come out and basically said, I'm not sure if we're going to challenge the arbitration decision. So that's his way of basically telling Joshua, yeah, I'm going to put the belts on the line against Wilder. I know I might have announced that I was going to fight you, Joshua, but that's not the case. So, quote, from Anthony Joshua on Twitter today, today is Wednesday, uh, May 19th. This is from Joshua, quote, Tyson Fury, the world now sees you for the fraud you are. You've let boxing down. You lied to the fans and led them on. Used my name for clout, not a fight. Bring me any championship fighter who can handle their business correctly. So, Dan, I don't know. I don't know what you got. We got a, we got a hodgepodge of, of fighters all yelling at each other from well, all angles. So, Dan, I turn it to you. What are your overall thoughts? Well, you know, all this uh, rhetoric outside the you know the courtroom and outside the arbitration uh, proceeding, I think that's being that's intentionally being deployed to place pressure on Fury to honor the terms of the fight. You know, with Joshua, because for Joshua, this is a huge payday as a result of this arbitration decision. He gets nudged to the side and uh, faces a significant diminution of, of of his you know of his next paycheck. Whoever he fights next, it's not going to be Tyson Fury. But all this rhetoric also has a dangerous potential side effect of running out the clock on Dante Wilder, because even though he's won an arbitration decision, that in and of itself is not um, self-executing. It's not enforceable in and of itself to act as an injunction. He has to take the next step, I think, and, and ask a federal court to confirm the arbitration award and enter a preliminary injunction to formally enjoin the fight from happening because the more that he's negotiating with Fury over a step-aside payment, if there is a step-aside payment, these guys can run out the string on Dante Wilder and leave him in a position where he's, maybe he's got a month or two to stop the fight, and maybe with all of his words and conduct, he will have waived the right to irreparable harm, which means he won't be able to get a temporary restraining order if, he, if he's negotiating over money to step aside. It's imperative that he lock this in with a confirmable arbitration award and a TRO in federal court and, and not screw around here because boxing is a dirty business and they could be monkeying around with him and, and trying to run out the clock to leave him in a, in a position where, as a practical matter, he can't use this arbitration decision offensively to enforce the ruling in it. He's got to take this to federal court post-haste, no delay. I'm interested to see what comes of it. Obviously, the story is very interesting. Tyson Fury has, I don't know, Dan, I, I will disagree with your statement a little bit earlier. Tyson Fury is 30-0-1. His one, we'll say, non-win was that fight against Wilder, and he obviously came back and avenged it. But I think people, a lot of people viewed him as winning that fight, but politics of boxing. If Fury goes on to beat Joshua and at some point, maybe not his, obviously not his next fight, and unifies the title belts and beats Wilder for a, uh, we'll say, a second time, I don't know. Fury's got a claim to be one of the best boxers, you know, in the past few past couple decades, at least in that conversation. So I'm excited to see it. I'm excited to see people talking about boxing and and three, maybe four guys. If you want to include uh, Anthony Ruiz, who obviously made a lot of headlines for beating Joshua. You know, we got we got a lot of names at the heavyweight division, which we haven't had in a number of years. So I'm excited to see it. Yeah, I don't know that I would call him the best heavyweight champion in the last couple of years. I mean, the Klitschko brothers. Uh, in their prime, would have beaten him seventy out of seventy times. Why? Why do you keep saying that? Did the Klitschko? I think he. I think he beat a Klitschko brother when they were like forty-three years old. I mean, that doesn't I mean, count. You told me they beat him seventy out of seventy times. They obviously didn't because they, they beat him. 
Okay, well, if you if you equate that with a young Tyson Fury against an older, I don't know which Klitschko he beat, but uh, he, bleed, you know, they're, he beat. They're, while, how do you how do you pronounce this name? Is it Vladimir or is it while, like with a W? No, the, the W W is like pronounced like a, a, a V. Vladimir. Why don't Why don't they just use a V then instead of a W, Mister Russian guy over here? Why, why don't uh, they just use a V? Yeah, because you know, think about the the boxing you know organizations WBC WBA. They all begin with a W. It makes sense for him to use the W at the beginning no, of his does. name. No, it does not, Dan. I will, I will fight you to the nail. Okay. Do you have anything else to add so, on, so on this boxing you're, one? You're jumping the gun on on assuming that you know Fury is going to fight Joshua. I I think there's a decision that that uh, Dante Wilder has to make here. How badly does he want this fight? Because he has the legal the legal stand. I mean, there are these rematch clauses in, in just about every championship fights contract. Very few of them get taken to arbitration. There's always a way to get somebody to step aside. You throw them a few million dollars. But in this case, Dante Wilder supposedly is angling for a $20 million step aside fee out of Tyson Fury's rumored $75 million payday to fight Anthony Joshua. So if you're Fury, do you give the $20 million? If you're Wilder, do you take the $20 million? Listen, I'm a lawyer and I I don't stand in the boxing ring. I look at things from a business perspective. You got to take care of your own and you've got to take care of your family. And if somebody's willing to pay you $20 million or $15 million to do nothing, you sign me up for that kind of work. And honestly, if I were in Wilder's position, I would be negotiating the highest step aside fee that you can get coupled with an automatic rematch clause or a guarantee that whoever wins the Joshua Fury fight has to face Wilder next. I think that's a win-win for Wilder. And I would expect at some point, we're so far down the road in the planning for the Joshua Fury fight that I think the economics will trump everything else. And they'll figure out a way to negotiate a significant monetary payment to Dante Wilder. Because otherwise, if you're in Wilder's position, now you only have two months to get ready for this big fight. They won't be able to market it. And the paydays for both Wilder and Fury are not going to be as good, as high as it would have been had this fight taken place organically following the Joshua fight. So I negotiate for Wilder and just get him paid. I think the arbitrator's decision is going to say that the fight has to be held by September of 2021. So it's going to leave some time to fight. But Dan, part of your analysis has already been answered by uh, Bob Arum. I guess he's the promoter for Tyson Fury. Quote, we are not paying Wilder to step aside. It's better to get rid of him and go about our business. We can make the Fury-Joshua fight for November or December. So I think if you're reading these comments. This is the same man who doesn't want to pay him. He doesn't no, want to pay him. man, Bob Arum, Harvard-trained lawyer, one of the smartest men in the history of the boxing business. And I represented him in the late 1990s in one boxing matter. His famous Why quote, is he not on this podcast? You represented him? Why is he not a guest right now? I think, I think I'd be able to get him uh, because I secured uh-huh. a positive outcome for him. The famous quote attributed to Bob Arum was, yesterday I was lying. Today I'm telling the truth. You know, think he's lying? No, but I think it's not, you know, a line in the sand. Money will talk. And it's essentially code to uh, Dante Wilder's, you know, camp to lower your expectations on a step aside fee because $20 million seems a little bit high, but he has all the leverage in the world. He has the, he, he's wielding an arbitrator's decision, which will soon, if he's smart, confirm it in federal court. He can block this fight and cost Aram, cost Joshua and cost Fury a lot more money than the step-aside fee. So I I think Wilder holds all the cards right now. 
Especially, Dan, if Wilder beats Fury, that would throw a whole monkey wrench in all these plans. So it's a very interesting topic. I think if you're, if you're trying to get into boxing, this is the right time to do it with three bona fide heavyweight fighters that are all kind of vying for that number one spot. Okay, that's it. We'll, we'll keep an eye on that. It's obviously making make news in a number of circles. So, okay, number three, Dan, one of our earliest episodes that we, you and I had on the podcast, our first emergency episode, was back in July of 2020. We're almost... We're almost about at our one-year anniversary again. I think it was mid-June when you and I officially had our first podcast. So there was a comment. Or, well, I guess let's let's put us back in the seats where we were about 365 days ago at this point. Major League Baseball was trying to fight and struggle to get back to play during the pandemic. And there was a bunch of COVID protocol they had to figure out. They had to figure out what the players were going to make. But before they figured out about salaries, they had to figure out how many games were going to be played in the season. Now, if you bought the, the – uh, if you read the rumor mill – the owners had agreed to salaries the players are going to get paid and all the salaries that players make now are based on revenue that are coming into the owner's pocket. So that's gate revenue from fans, from concessions, from tickets, from merchandise. If there is no fan based revenue, right? It doesn't really, this player salaries don't make as much sense. So the owners, whether you want to believe them or not, I'm not sure we can yet until we see the books, but said we are basically to be operating at a loss for this season. So we want fewer games and we'll lose less money. That was the, the logic from the owner side. Now, what ended up happening is we had a, a very abbreviated 60 game season, which worked to the owner's benefit. Again, if you're buying that, that logic. Now we didn't always have a 60 game season. There were deals on the table that the, the union wanted. They obviously wanted more games. So the players could make more money. There's obviously a 162 game season normally, the players were offering 114 game season right around there, 100 game season. The owners kept saying no, 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 until it went to a point in the schedule. We were basically at the end of June towards July where there wasn't enough time in the calendar, right? We play baseball into October, November. We don't play into December, January, where they can only get a 60 game schedule in. So if it was a bona fide good faith negotiation and they ended up at 60 games, that's one thing. But Dan, if the commissioner of Major League Baseball went on the Dan Patrick show, another great Dan, and hypothetically said, that it was always going to end up at 60 games, no matter how the negotiations went with the players. It's always going to be 60 games. Dan, do you think that might have been a little bit of negotiating in bad faith if Manfred saying, again, hypothetically, that it was always going to get there? Well, this is going to be the subject of an arbitration. And of course, that's not the most street smart thing to say uh, in a public forum like that. It actually you know, gave the, the Players Association a really strong argument to use going forward in the arbitration this was a big moment yeah. and at the time i want to give us some credit we predicted that a, a grievance would be filed by the major league baseball players association the union and it was just a matter of if it have impacted the cba right or if, you know because i guess important in this conversation major league baseball cba expires on december 1st of 2021 that's this year and we said hey these guys have just gotten over fighting over the negotiations on the pandemic within a year of this they're going to go to the cba and try to negotiate this and oh, oh yeah, looming over them is a potential massive multi-million dollar grievance that, hey, Rob Manford wasted somewhere between 25 and 50 games by negotiating bad faith. So we predicted, Dan, we'll pat ourselves on the back. You want to go back and listen to the episode, be our guest. But we, we acknowledge that a grievance was going to happen. And guess what? This past week it was filed. So I guess, Dan, I, I take it to you. I get just the optics of this. I think they have, a, I mean, obviously Manfred walked back his comments a little bit. He said he was talking that the virus made it impossible for them to have more than 60 games. But Dan, I, I don't know how he gets around it. He's basically admitted that he'd always gone in saying that 60 games was going to be, no matter how many games he pretended to offer, offering 40 games, 80 games, it was always going to be 60 games and he was never going to budge. 
Well, you know, MLB has a, um, an abysmal track record in arbitrations with the Players Association going all the way back to the 1980s. But uh, I'm not sure, so sure this Players Association has negotiated things and negotiated this you know, deal the right way. There may, be more, there may be more than meets the eye than these public comments. You know, there are going to be emails. There are going to be this paper trail that really lays bare the circumstances surrounding how they reach this agreement. Okay, so I wouldn't necessarily jump to the conclusion of just taking an on-air quote on the Dan Patrick show out of the context of the negotiations between the parties that spanned a much longer period of time than a TV broadcast. So, you know, because this is a private arbitration, we won't be seeing all the evidence laid out, but I think it looks pretty good for the Players Association so far based on that one comment. And if this were a jury trial, given how unpopular, you know, Major League Baseball and, and the management side is, in, in sort of the public sphere. I mean, if this were a jury trial, I'd feel a lot better if I were the Players Association with a comment like that, because that will resonate. But in front of an arbitrator, you know, sort of in, in, a, in a private arbitration, devoid of that kind of passion and rhetoric that you might see in a jury trial, I think it's much less important. And what is more important are the sort of the context of the negotiations. So I don't know how this is going to turn out in the end. This is just an award of money. It doesn't change anything, but it does set it does create an interesting backdrop and backstory to the upcoming negotiations over a new CBA. And it really does lift the veil on the poisonous relationship that exists between, you know, management and the player's side. And we could be gearing up for, for a pretty nasty, you know, battle and potentially a strike or a lockout. Yeah, next I, year, I think next year, not this year. Yeah, you know, when, when you have uh, any type of CBA expiring, there is always the chance of a lockout or a strike. Major League Baseball found a way to bungle their COVID negotiations and their COVID-shortened season in a worse way than anyone else did. If you just look back to news articles about a year ago this time, they very much litigated this in the public sphere. Tony Clark and the Players Association side and Rob Manfred on the, on the league side, it got really messy and it didn't. we didn't see that in the NHL. We didn't see that really in the NFL or in the NBA, anything closely resembling this. But just keep in mind, right, these owners are all, you know, billionaires, millionaires, whatever you want to call them. But no one's in the business of just losing money for free. $500 million split 30 ways, you know, it's $10 million and change all around. Uh, the owners aren't going to want to lose that. So maybe the players come in and Dan, to your point, I don't know, is it a, is it a slam dunk in arbitration? Not necessarily. We have to see what comes out, but you're going to probably, you know, players are going to try to get some additional concessions uh, in exchange for dropping this grievance. So by, by all means, yeah. it's definitely going to have some type of impact on the negotiations. Dan, anything else to add on this one before we move on to our fourth and final topic? Yeah, just, just uh, um, it, it leaves me thinking, how do we ever get to the point where players' rights and their share of the revenues keep getting lower, billionaires buy these teams, and when they sell the teams for a couple billion dollars, none of that goes to the players. Yet, yet the system has been created based upon a disparity in the bargaining power. And I would, I, would, I would say that the players had more rights and a better economic situation, maybe not in gross dollars, but in terms of the allocation of revenues, things have gotten worse for the players over the last 20 years. And it just, I, I sometimes I'm amazed at how the players have been consistently losing seeding ground on a number of economic areas over the last 10 years, either because they've lost court cases or they just, they, they just don't have the same bargaining power by virtue of the fact that billionaires are going to remain billionaires regardless of whether the games are played and players have a very short shelf life in which to apply their trade. So yeah, I'd like to see the pendulum start to swing the other way a little bit. 
Hopefully we get there. I think uh, player empowerment's making its way through college, and uh, we're seeing it more and more in the pros. It hasn't yet made its way to the, uh, the bargaining table when it comes to the allegation of revenue, but uh, we shall see, Dan. we got a we got a big CBA expiring with Major League Baseballs at the end of the year, so we shall see. Okay, so that brings us, Dan, to the uh, our final topic, just to put a pin in it, conversation we had last week with Mike and myself. Bob Baffert, if you just read it on paper, uh, maybe one of the best trainers uh, of all time in the horse racing uh, industry. Uh, he's won more Kentucky Derbies than anyone else. He has two Triple Crown winners. Bob Baffert's, uh, you know, if he's not the top trainer in all horse racing, he's right up there. Now that's on paper. Uh, similarly, Dan, uh, Lance Armstrong, if you read it on paper, one of the best, you know, uh, cyclists of all time. But the, the conversation isn't just on paper. You have to look at uh, violations, doping violations, medication violations. So Bob Baffert was hit last week, shortly after we recorded our podcast, with a class action lawsuit filed in California federal court seeking, I guess, the the cash equivalent of what betters would have won had Mandaloon run the, won the race. So the argument is, hey, we bet on Mandaloon. He was a 20 plus to one. We are a number of betters across the country. And but for your cheating, our horse finished uh, in second. He would have been in first. So but for your cheating, we lost out on a lot of money. And we're uh, recruiting people across the country to sue you and rub your name through, run your name through the mud. So, Dan, I think I know where you're going to go with this, but what are your overall thoughts on on the teeth of this lawsuit, the substance of the allegations, and, and where you think it goes with Mr. Baffert? Yeah, it bears many similarities to the class action lawsuits against the Houston Astros that were filed by, uh, you know, gamblers who, you know, would have won their bets had the Astros been, you know, had, had the Astros refrained from cheating. And I think it's going to run into some of the same roadblocks of having standing to sue Bob Baffert directly, because I think the argument or the, the proper defendant is to look to the betting companies and having the betting companies make good uh, on those bets. And it would set a really unusual and dangerous precedent to make the competitors in the contests uh, responsible, the gamblers for cheating. I mean, that's why you have, you have criminal violations, you have disciplinary proceedings within the, within the you know, horse racing industry I don't think there's sufficient Article Three standing to give, you know, betters a right of action against the contestants or their managers or trainers. And uh, you know, the Bill Belichick uh, precedent. Spygate uh, the, case. Yeah, I was going to bring it up. Yeah, it might have been Spygate. You're right. It might have been Spygate. So there's this line of federal court decisional law which says that that, that fans there isn't a the fans don't have standing to sue, and that principle was extended to cover the betters who were suing the Houston Astros. So. I, I just don't see a case like this succeeding. However, the one difference is that baseball is not is not played solely to facilitate betting. It exists as an independent form of entertainment, and the betting is just ancillary to it. It it it, it enhances the fan engagement. Horse racing, the Derby, all those events exist for no other reason than to gamble on them. Because if there were no betting on the horse races, there would be much less interest in the Kentucky Derby and the Triple Crown, they may not even have been televised events. So you might make, you could make a stronger case for a gambler standing to sue cheaters in horse racing, which is an event that exists solely as a betting opportunity, no differently than maybe a slot machine. Could a gambler file a class action lawsuit if the slot machine is rigged and or, or, or some you know, electronic machine in the casino you know, shorts the customers? I suppose you could analogize that to horse race betting and create a right of action under the notion that 
uh, horse racing exists for no other reason than as a sort of an add-on or an ancillary or directly connected to betting as opposed to baseball, which is just sort of indirectly connected to it. I had an appearance, uh, it's pre-recorded, uh, it'll go, go up uh, Thursday whenever people are listening to this, um, with our mutual friend Jeff over at ESPN uh, South Dakota. We were talking about this case and I said, you know, who, who does something like this hurt, right? And in a certain sense, right, like uh, if you're making the, uh, I mean, the, the rule of horse racing is that once the race is marked official and they mark that on the track, and sometimes they hold it up with an inquiry, maybe a potential violation, a photo finish, whenever the race is marked official, that's it. Right. And that's where the, the law of horse betting or horse race betting ends. Uh, once someone's declared the winner there, they declared declared the winner. It doesn't really matter what happens after the fact. So Dan and I, you, you bring this up and this is kind of at the heart of the lawsuit, the Kentucky Derby results. If the split race, uh, the split test results from uh, Medina spirits, second test after this Kentucky Derby come back and confirm the first test that there was an, I think it's beta, beta methezone. Um, if it confirms that there was a, a, a you know, a improper level of this drug in the horse's system, most likely the Kentucky Derby results will be, will be changed and Mandaloon will be declared the winner. Now, if you were allowed to go back to the horse track, I'm not talking about necessarily this lawsuit and say, Hey, I bet on Mandaloon. Why can't you cash? Why can't I cash my ticket? Let's say, fine, let's, let's, let's go forward and they should have to pay Mandaloon. You know who loses in this inquiry? The, the betting operator, right? Because they'd have to a pay on Mandaloon and B have to hunt down every single better that, that made a wager on Medina spirit, which they're not going to do. When you go to anyone that's been to a horse track, I grew up next to Yonkers uh, harness track with my dad. We used to go bet on exactas and trifectas, superfectas, all that fun stuff. And you you place a bet at the window, you give them cash, they give you a receipt back. They don't take your social security number. They don't look at your driver's license. They don't have any identifiable information on you. So, you know, that that's it. It's, it's almost impossible to figure out who placed these bets to unwind the money. That's kind of the rule of horse racing. And Dan, you, you nailed it on the head. Like, I don't know, if you as a better as a uh, as a season ticket holder, like in the in the Jets Spygate case, when the Jets season ticket holder fans or season ticket holders sued Bill Belichick and the Patriots, they were saying, "Hey, you cheated us out of a product in the field because the Jets kept losing to your cheating Patriots, and that's not fair." And the courts basically said, "Listen, you having a ticket doesn't guarantee you that they won't be cheating on the field. It just guarantees you basically the entertainment right." And I think you're getting equivalent of that with betting laws, right? Betters aren't allowed to, they're not, they don't have any standing to sue because they're not part of the sport. So you placing a wager, it's almost like, hey, the assumption of the risk, you're bound by the rules of horse racing that basically say a race is official and payouts are official when the track says it is, not when the split race decision comes in, you know, two months later. So I, I, uh, I think this lawsuit, as I'll take one of your terms, Dan. I think the lawsuit is DOA. I love to see Bob Baffert dragged through the mud a little bit, but I don't think the lawsuit's going anywhere. Did I coin that? I use that one I a think lot. You, you use it a lot. Well, in your heyday, when you'd come on the podcast every week, you'd say it a lot, but now we get it from you every time you're on, once a month. I overuse it, I think, now. I think I've got to... Well, a, now a, a, a we have new listeners of the something po- else. What? New listeners of the podcast that have never heard it, Dan. So, you know, I'm, we're reintroducing them. <laughs> and a lawsuit that's not filed that we expect to be filed is MIA. I like that term too. Okay. Um, right. uh, anything else, Dan, to add on this one? No, I think I think we covered uh, a couple of the really important topics for the week, and and you know I, I you know we're talking about the future of Florida sports betting, uh, sports betting controversy with Baffert, uh, you know court situation, an important court ruling in the uh, in the boxing industry, and a future 
arbitration that's going to take place in Major League Baseball. I think there's a, a really good, I think they're connected. And thematically, it kind of brings us all the way home. It's been a, it's been a great week for sports law. And those are four meaty topics, definitely. So before we sign off, I, uh, I told you I was going to do this, but I want to thank you, Dan, for bringing me on the podcast. And uh, I want to thank our listeners, this New York Law School professorship, just a brief story uh, for, for obviously our diehards of the podcast. One of our listeners of the podcast was a student or is a student at New York Law School. At the end of the semester, I guess they hand out these flyers, like what could you see differently? What classes are good or what teachers are bad and what new things could we offer? And one of the listeners of the podcast, I'm not going to name her. It's not, uh, it's not her? Stephanie Weisenberger. It's not Stephanie Weisenberger. Trust me, it, it, people thought it was, but said that we should have a sports law class. The administration at New York Law School took her up on it and they said, who would you like to teach the class? And they go, well, there's this crazy guy, Dan Lust, who lives in New York and he's on this podcast and I think he should teach it. So Dan, you invited me on the podcast once upon a time. A listener of the podcast made the recommendation and obviously you know i had to do well in the interviews and all that fun stuff but uh yeah, it was definitely born from the podcast so a big thank you to you dan uh i wanted to save this when you were back on the podcast and a thank you to the listeners of conduct detrimental for helping us on our journeys dan yeah thanks dan that's a very paul's graph like proximate causal effect that i had uh i think you kind of earned that one on your own <laughs> if you're going to thank me i guess you have to thank uh dan worley Dan Worley uh, too. Inviting me to join the podcast. And then of course you have to thank Dan's parents who created him. Ah. And uh, and, and thank his old law firm, Foley and Lardner, for letting him do the podcast while he was still an attorney there. there Thanks a lot of all around. Thank you. And my parents for naming me Dan, because that's what obviously got me on the Dan's yeah. radar session. Everyone thanks Dan, all around. You stand on the shoulder of giants. You really so, do. The many, many, many people who brought you here. Much appreciated. So, Dan, before it's not not all about me. I wanted to tell you one one fun story as we're wrapping this. Dan, were you a big ABA fan back in the day? Sure. I mean, I, I lived uh, about a mile away from the Nassau Coliseum, and I saw Julius Irving mm. in his heyday, 74, 75. I, I think it was a three year period when he when, when he was traded by the Squires to the Nets. And I I used to say, I mean, I go back to the ABA with Rick Barry playing for the Nets at the old Island Garden. But I remember Dr. J, Larry Keenan, Billy Paltz. Bill Melchioni, John Roach, uh, Swen Nader. Oh God! And who was who was the player? Uh, who's the player who died in the aviation disaster, seventy three, seventy four? It's going to come to me in a second. Listeners, help me well, out on while, Twitter. While, that was a big time, big time follower of the ABA. While you're thinking about it, um, and you can you could use the advent of Google while I'm doing this. Um, we do this topic, Dan. You know, because I know you're when you're not on it, you're an avid listener of the show. We do this topic called "What to Watch for." A couple weeks ago. I recommended uh, a book called Loose Balls, which is about a guy by the name of Terry Pluto. And it's the story of the ABA. I drive to work every day, so I have a lot of time in the car. I got an audio book to pound through it. It is unreal, the stories of the ABA. It's almost like a fantasy. If you you and your friends run a fantasy league and you just all of a sudden had said, hey, we're going to start a pro league. It was very much underfunded. They had a draft of every league. These guys, this was pre-internet. So they were looking at magazines to figure out who was good. It's really fascinating. Dan, Dan, there's stories from guys like Larry Brown, Doug Moe, Rick Barry, Julie Servin, Connie Hawkins. It's uh, If you're a fan of just uh, – if you're a history fan and you're a sports fan, this book – I've never heard half of these, but they're hilarious. I'm in the car laughing to myself. I don't even know who the guy's name was, but there was a guy – there was no – it was kind of like martial law when it came to the ABA. It was a player who was uh, getting triple teamed during a game, and he was on his way to scoring like 40 points that game. Triple teamed. 
And when he passed it to his teammates, they'd shoot and they'd miss. So he said, you know what? I'm getting triple teamed. They're going to throw the ball away. I'm still going to take a shot. So he took a shot as a bad shot. It would go in. So the coach pulls him and says, listen, you're, you're out. You can't keep doing that. You have to pass it to your teammates. So this player this is just a book full of great stories. Takes the ball from the coach. It goes, okay, coach. And takes the ball and walks across the court to go inbound it. Yet the coach has just said, you're out. I'm subbing you out. So he tells this player, I guess he didn't hear me correctly, right? Go wait for a dead ball and then sub in for that guy. And uh, he waits for a dead ball. The guy comes in, checks in from the scores table, goes to the guy, hey, coach says you're out. And the guy goes, I- I'm not out. I think you're mistaken. I think you mean one of the other guys is out. So the guy goes back to the coach and says, hey, he said he's not coming out. So they do this song and dance three times. And the third time he goes to the guy, he goes, hey, he says you got to come out. I don't know what you're doing. You got to come out. So the guy who's not refusing to get taken, balls up his fist and he goes, I think you are misunderstanding me. I am not coming out of this game. Someone else is coming out. That guy was then later traded, uh, I think probably the next day, for a guy by the name of Barry Leibowitz, I think is the name was the trade for. This guy Leibowitz was traded like three times in a season. Anyway, it's a great book full of stories, uh, and I highly, highly recommend it. Especially you, you're Mr. ABA over here. You know who was the ball boy for the New York Nets during that time period? He was like a manager, ball boy, not, not a ball boy manager, Al Troutwig, MSG uh, Network. Do you know yeah, Bob so Costas got his start? Bob Costas got his start in the ABA, as did Larry Brown. That's right. And the greatest sports deal of all time was the owners of the St. Louis Spirits. You, you, you know the answer to that. You raised your finger. What is the what is the best deal ever made in the history of sports? They Dan? got the rights in perpetuity on the TV deal, Dan. I know you're not listening to the podcast because I brought that up on this one. <laughs> I, I got you, Dan. I nailed you. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what. Well, I'll end the ABA discussion with uh, my view that Julius Irving is one of the top 10 players in the history of, of, of the game of basketball. And if you doubt me, go to YouTube, go, go watch the video clips of Dr. J at his best uh, when he played for the Nets and the Virginia Squires from the early 70s to the, to, to the mid 70s, much better than he ever was with the Philadelphia 76ers. That was the prime of Dr. J and he was the plaintiff or the defendant in one of the most important sports law cases regarding player, you know, movement and player rights of all time. You know, his, he, he tried to jump back into the NBA and the Atlanta Hawks signed him at a time when they, they put him in the same lineup for one exhibition game with Pistol Pete Maravich. Can you think about Pistol Pete and Dr. J playing at the same time? Uh, you know, incredible. And then I think the owners of the Virginia Squires uh, filed a lawsuit in the Eastern District of New York and uh, a reported decision enjoined Julius Irving from continuing to play for the Atlanta Hawks. And that brought him back to the ABA where he could continue to play for the Squires. But one of the major, this was like before you were born, one of the most important sports law cases still cited as precedent regarding like arbitration decisions and enforceability of arbitration decisions. So Dr. J played a, a critical role, not just in the ABA, but sports law. Yeah, I, uh, I would implore you guys, there's just ripe of sports law issues. It's a wild maverick league. They're making it up as they go. Lawsuits flying left and right. Connie Hawkins, Dan, also had a lawsuit. They took yep. on about four or five players that were banned from the NBA for point shaving purposes and brought them to the ABA. Absolute wild west, great stories. Dan, I think that does it for us. Uh, Dan, anything else? We put the books. I feel like uh, oh, we unless you want to go a couple hours longer, you know. I do not. It is very <laughs> okay. late. I do not. Uh- <laughs> All right, Daniel. Um, it's fun as always. Thanks for bringing me back 
to conduct detrimental after a, a somewhat of a brief or lengthy hiatus. And I hope now that the Florida sports betting situation has at least been put to bed temporarily, I'll be able to resurface on some other sports law issues going forward in May and in June. But really, I was in the bubble, you know, the, the, the gambling bubble for three weeks. Now I'm out. Dan, we, we love having you back. The podcast is not the same without you. So as always, Dan is on social media at Wallach Legal, myself at Sports Law Lust, the show at Con Detrimental. For Dan, myself, and the rest of the Conduct Detrimental family, we will see you next week on another episode of Conduct Detrimental. Yeah.